I just really want to thank all of you for just for being here this morning. All of those who have contributed to our um, our worship service this morning, um, starting off with the trumpet call of once in royal David City, and uh, with that beautiful line, and our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love, as in many ways the goal of all that we are are, are doing. And, um, but all the also um, the scripture reading and all of it together, and the, especially the, the prayer and the lighting of the, um, of the Advent candles and, and all of that. Um, this morning, I, um, I, want us, I want to invite us all to, um, not just at this moment, but during this week, to times of prayer. Prayer for the suffering that continues to spread from the coronavirus. I used to start every sermon during the corona season with talking about where it all was. And I stopped doing that, and I, I'm not going to go back to doing it. But at the same time, we have almost reached 800,000 deaths in the U.S., unless maybe they passed it this morning. I look back in the sermon that I preached exactly at this time last year. We were, we didn't know it, but we were just, well, maybe we knew it. We were going into that awful fall season and then late fall and then the winter. And at this Sunday last year, we had just passed 300,000 deaths. Who would have thought? That even with vaccines, we would be so such that we would reach 800,000 by a year later. This year has taught us our vulnerability to the virus, especially to those variants like that Delta variant that still is killing so many people and others that can evolve, evolve all over the world. So please pray for that. Also pray for all of those people who were killed and had homes and livelihoods destroyed by the, by the tornadoes that spread across all those states, especially Kentucky, which is just uh, hit so hard by it. So keep that, that very much in your, in your mind. I also want to just mention the fact that this, this week has been a time of special Thanksgiving for me. We've just passed Thanksgiving. But it is a time of thanksgiving for me. This week, this last week, I completed 25 years in the privileged position of, of being the minister of this wonderful congregation. Where, thank you. We, we are all experiencing the whiplash of this, this pandemic and together. And we can see just by the emptiness here of the, the impact position of the pandemic of, on our of being our the minister of this wonderful congregation. We stand together with grace and experience each other as the body of people devoted to God. And we welcome all to, to join us on this journey of faith. And so I, I just want to thank all of you for the inexpressible gift that you've given to me over these, these years. 
looking forward uh, next week to the, the Christmas pageant of the children, and uh, you saw them uh, go out. I think they're probably making some preparations for that, even uh, beginning as we speak with, with Jason. This is now the third week of Advent. The, with each week, one of the great themes of Advent paired with something else. The week one, as Kyle led us, it was love, paired with the idea of need. Week two, last week, it was joy, paired with the idea of grief. And then today, week three, it is peace, paired with the concept, the idea of power. Now, of course, peace is one of those really great themes, and so very fitting at Advent. Last week, we, we talked about the story of the, of the angels at the time of Jesus' birth, that host of angels that suddenly appears with the one angel. And they sing this, this refrain that gets echoed later in the Gospel of Luke. Glory in highest realms belongs to God, and on earth... Let there be peace among humans, the focus of God's favor. That announcement of a call to peace links, as we've already seen in our, in our uh, Advent wreath um, lighting, links powerfully across the centuries to us. But it also links backwards as one reads the scriptures powerfully also more than six centuries, to Isaiah and the, the scriptures uh, that you, you heard read just a moment ago. Isaiah's prophetic anticipation of a child and um, that to us a child is born. That's become a song in itself that's often sung at Christmas time, but also just one of the best-known scriptures of Advent and, and Christmas. And if you have, as I hope you do, you have your, the notes, the scriptures for this, this message, you can look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and you see the, the, all that leads into it that was just read to us a moment ago and you, by Eric, and you'll, you'll see the, the way in which it unfolds, very serious things that are, that are being talked about about how there has been dishonor given to this, er this area in the north that often had Gentiles in it, but now the, the Lord is making it glorious. But especially then also the way that the darkness of people's experience has been overcome by light. And then that the, the, the burdens of oppression have been lifted and the violence of war has been broken. And all of that leads up to those last verses of this particular section, verses 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And then, of course, that line... Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. 
So it embodies that longing for peace that has echoed down through the years. For more than 600 years, these words of hope and anticipation had flowed through the hearts and the minds of the people of Israel <clears throat> before the coming of Jesus. They were first written in the time of King Hezekiah, who died in 689 B.C., long before, as, as long before Jesus as the Middle Ages are before us. <clears throat> Hezekiah could at best hope for, as he himself put it, peace in our time, or peace in my time, in my own time, even though he was told by Isaiah that bad things were, were ahead for the, for the nation. But um, still, even as he lived under the dominance of that Assyrian empire, he longed for, and Isaiah expressed the longing of the people for, for peace. But these words then were read and reread and sung again and again by Israel through those centuries, centuries of being broken by societal disruption, societal destruction in many ways, by conquest by foreign nations, whether it was Assyria already or the Babylon or late, later the Greek empires and the Roman empire, loss of independence and on and on and on, including the whole Babylonian exile. Could there be any real peace on earth? a real prince of peace, as Isaiah's poetry put it. As it happens, when, when Jesus was born and the angels sang of peace, there was already a very real and powerful claimant for the job of prince of peace. In fact, just about seven years before Jesus was born, the Romans had, had, uh, had decided to erect in the capital, in Rome, a magnificent marble altar of peace of Augustus, the Arapacus Augusti. It was commissioned by the Roman Senate on July the 4th, 13 BC, to celebrate how Augustus Caesar had brought an end to the civil wars and as the single dominant ruler had established peace and prosperity across the empire. Uh, well, not on all the borders, of course, but, but in general, he had. Peace was one of the great themes of the empire in this period. Augustus, by his vast power, was the princeps, the first citizen, that's where we get the word prince, of peace. That's the kind of peace that it's easy for us to recognize. It's a kind of peace that we value. We value it in our modern world after the hot wars and the cold wars of the 20th century. And as we live in the midst of the conflict and the oppression and the terrorism and the mass shootings of our own time. But it has, it's a kind of peace that has very distinct winners and losers, insiders and outsiders. About a century after Augustus, a Roman senator named Tacitus, who was a great historian, wrote about Rome's violent border wars in a work that's called Agricola. His, this Roman historian wrote a damning speech that he put in the mouth of a British chieftain 
named Calgacus, just before the ba a battle with the Roman army in Scotland, of all places. It wasn't Scotland yet at that time, but it was going to be Scotland, in about A.D. 83. That's about, uh, approximately the time that the Gospel of Luke is being written. Uh, and Calgacus, as he talks to his soldiers, at least the little section of what he says, I'm not going to read you by any means the whole speech, he says, you face these deadly Romans whose arrogance you cannot turn aside by obedience and self-restraint. Oppressors of the world, if their enemy has wealth, they're greedy for it. If their victim is poor, they strive to dominate. Neither east nor west has satisfied their gluttony for power. They plunder, butcher, and steal, and they falsely call these things empire. They make a desolation, and they call it peace. So long ago, Tacitus, who was a wealthy member of the winning side in that conflict, saw the dark side of the relationship between power and peace, a dark side that can be documented in a thousand turns of history throughout the ages. Of course, we want peace. We want, of course, peace on our terms, since of course, we're in the right. But just because peace in our time is often abused, that doesn't take away our longing for something more, for peace, for real peace, for peace both on a large scale and on the scale of our individual lives as we live day to day. We hear that longing expressed by Isaiah, but now Isaiah of the exile, several hundred years after the time of, the, of Isaiah, of the time of Hezekiah. After Israel's long history of faithless rebellion led to the Babylonian exile and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is Isaiah 52, the section that leads directly into the the song about the suffering servant that ends Isaiah 52 and, and goes through Isaiah 53. I won't read that part, but just this introduction. So, so beautiful and, and anticipa anticipating so much of what's going on, but, but it's moving toward that song of the suffering servant and it's what, part of what made this passage have such an impact in the time of Jesus and on Jesus. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of one who brings, good, who brings news announcing peace, bringing news of good things, announcing salvation, saying to Zion, your God reigns. The kingdom of God is here, as Jesus put it. A voice. Your watchmen lift their voice. Together they sing for joy, for before their own eyes they see the return of God, the return of Yahweh to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem.
Yahweh has bared his holy arm. Mm, bared that holy arm. I wonder the, the guns came out. But the holy arm is the introductory phrase to the servant song. This holy arm of God is the suffering servant. Yahweh has bared his holy arm to the eyes of all the nations. That's, that holy arm is that suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And all the ends of the earth, notice the inclusion of all the nations, shall see the salvation of our God. These are prophecies that are echoing in the hearts of people like Simeon and Anna that we've talked about when Jesus was born in the temple and when he was brought to the temple. People who lived longing for, anticipating, as, as Luke says, the consolation of Israel or the, the freeing of Jerusalem the, from slavery, the redemption of Jerusalem. When the elderly Zechariah picks up his newborn son John, he echoes those prophetic words. They flow from him. And notice how he still anticipates Yahweh returning to Zion, visiting his people to create redemption and peace. God's power to accomplish these things in a world of competing, hostile powers is interwoven with the distinct character of what God's power is doing. God's power is giving salvation. God's power is giving forgiveness. God's power flows out of his deep compassion, and it leads to a true enlightenment so that his people can discover the path of peace. Listen to these words from Luke chapter 1 as Zechariah uh, blesses God for this child that has been born to him and Elizabeth. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, for he visited his people and brought their redemption from slavery. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Not in the house of Herod, not in the house of Rome, but in that house of David that had not had an occupant on the throne for centuries now. Just as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Long-term longing. And you, little child, talking to John, the baby John, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you'll go before the Lord to prepare his paths. Listen for that word path coming up again. You'll go before the Lord to prepare his paths, to give a knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the deep compassion of our God by which dawn light from on high shall visit us. That's the coming of God. To illuminate those sitting in darkness and in death's shadows. To lead our feet straight into a path of peace. Zechariah echoes the words of the ancient prophets, but with a distinct transformative vision of what God is truly doing in this advent, in this coming, as his infant son John leads the way of the anointed king 
that king of a power different from any other. Now, this is basic. If you're going to deliver people out of slavery, that's what the word redemption means. If you're going to break them out of oppression and keep them from destruction, that's salvation, deliverance, you've got to have power. That's why we hear so many echoes of the Exodus story. That was the archetypal story representing God's deliverance of his people. The enslaver never wants to let go. He justifies himself, hangs on to his property. When they get away, he sends chariots to get them back, like Pharaoh did with the Israelites. For the Israelites, it takes a Red Sea opening wide and then sweeping back together to stop a pursuing army of chariots. Now, when power means armies and chariots and spears and soldiers, we understand it. We may not like it, but we understand it, even at the distance of 3,000 years. But an opening and closing sea? That's stepping over into a different realm. We can sort of imagine it, of course. We can portray it really well, very vividly, with good CGI these days. But actually to grasp it, to understand it, that's beyond us. That's part of the problem of Jesus for most of the people around him. He uses signs that they can recognize, powerful signs of healing that they willingly celebrate and take advantage of. The lines, as I often say, go across the field waiting to get to Jesus. But he doesn't carry through. He doesn't doesn't use his power. If he's got that power, why doesn't he use it against his enemies? Why doesn't he destroy the bad guys? Take over the government. Set up a good army for a holy war against the evil forces of Rome. Jesus just doesn't understand real power. The power necessary to create peace on your own terms, like the great Augustus did. But the power-filled message of the gospel is that Jesus understands power very well indeed. Everything about Jesus' story is the inbreaking of God's real Power, the bearing of God's holy arm in Isaiah's vivid poetry. That arm that is the suffering servant of the Lord that Isaiah describes. Jesus lives that power. That power that's anticipated already at his birth. But he lives it all through his ministry and especially in his crucifixion, which is the ultimate manifestation of God's power. Just as God chooses the feed trough, as we talked about, God in Jesus chooses the cross. 
The cross of Jesus is that unique place where one who is wholly human and wholly God reaches down into the depths of human brokenness and rebellion and sin and also suffering and pain and loneliness and betrayal and even death and takes it all on himself. Only that event has the power to change the entire history of humanity for eternity. To break forth into new resurrection life and self-giving love to bring together all the shattered pieces of God's creation and create the path to peace. When someone like Paul went out proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified, as he says at the beginning of the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, he learned clearly that that's really hard for any of us to grasp. Even much harder than a dividing and closing Red Sea. There, at least, God destroys a dangerous enemy. We, get, we can grasp that part of it. But in the cross, the enemies kill Jesus. They appear to kill the anointed king. To kill God. Power triumphs. But it's the wrong power. But it's not. Now, Augustus and Pharaoh and every little office titan or family dictator, in fact, every one of us who uses our power in the ordinary expected sense has real choices. We can, even on our little scales, do a lot of damage. We can destroy. Or we can do better. And doing better is important on whatever scale. Never forget that. But in the human stories, the stories that populate all of human history, the bad, the damaged, often, regularly outweighs, far outweighs, overwhelms the good. As Jesus warned us, we can't see the log sticking out of our own eye. But the power of the cross takes us into a transformed vision of the world, transformed by a love and grace that's given to us and redefines life, redefines my life, your life, our life. Paul lived to proclaim that message of the cross and its grace. And he experienced both how hard it is for all of us, of us to grasp it, but also what astonishing real-life-giving uh, real power the cross of Jesus has. One of those great passages in which he reflects on this comes from 1 Corinthians. I just want to read verse 18 and then 20 to 24. As Paul is talking about the cross and, talk, and the, the experience of preaching the message of the cross, the word of the cross. 
He says, for the message of the cross, or the word of the cross, is foolishness to those whom the world is ruining. But to us who are being delivered, it's God's power. And then in verse 20, didn't God clearly mark the wisdom of the world as foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not recognize God through its wisdom. It was God's own choice through the foolishness of the message we proclaim to save those who put their trust in it. Now everyone's involved. Jews are asking for signs and Greeks are seeking wisdom. So we're proclaiming an anointed king who's been crucified. To Jews, a scandal. To everybody else, foolishness. But to all who hear his call, both Jews and Greeks, an anointed king who's both God's power and God's wisdom. That's the challenge of Advent season. That's the challenge of Easter season. That's the challenge of every season and every day of life for a follower of Jesus. To let that message of what God did in Jesus come deeply into us, into our hearts, into our minds, reshaping our, the way we see the world around us and everybody and everything. To hear his call and to put our trust in it. Then something that looks like foolish scandal transforms into God's own power, his power to give life, to create new life in us. Now, astonishingly, peace comes with that self-giving love that is the power of God. Peace has so many meanings in our experience that we hardly know where to begin. We can reach for meta metaphors, like I love the, that great passage that was read as our call to worship this morning from Isaiah chapter 11, where you remember the image there is so famous that, that uh, says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard lie down with, uh, with the young goat and a little child will lead them. Ah, what an amazing picture of Things that can't be brought together, being brought together. A picture in the poetry of the prophet that, it, that he brings before us and lets us envision something beyond our ordinary imagination. Or we can think of peace within our own hearts and minds. And again, turning to, to scripture, we envision a person like Paul. You can think of yourself and situations that you've been in or people that you know who've gone through really desperate situations. I think of Paul in, in the, the, just the story that one follows in, in the book of Acts of all of the persecution that he goes through. And when he writes his letter to the Philippians, he's in prison, sitting in prison, and he doesn't know whether he's going to be executed or not. He's waiting for news about that whether someone else decides to kill him or not. But he says this, famous lines from Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything. 
Oh, come on, Paul. Uh, don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the powerful peace that flows from knowing that the God who is in Jesus on that cross and in the resurrection and in the experience of each, each day of the Holy Spirit, that God is with us and giving life. But we can also think of that same Paul as he works day by day in various various churches. Churches like this and like so many others and various, all the huge variety of groups of people that, that are striving to, to live this out. As he works to bring that peace to a realization among these diverse communities. He goes out into a world that doesn't know anything about Jesus, that's divided up every single way that you can divide people up. Often in separate ghettos marked out with walls in the cities that are there. And he starts creating communities that have people from behind all of those different walls, even the walls of the slaves' quarters over there, and even bringing women out of their cloister into the community. But we can also think of that, that way in which he sees this, this gospel working. He's bringing this diversity of believers into a oneness in a society that's torn between these competing groups, especially the, the, the division between Jews and Gentiles. And in one passage, especially in Ephesians, he talks about this. This gospel emerged in power for peace across those deeply ingrained lines of division. As the, as the famous line from, from Galatians 3.28 between Jew and Greek, or Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. But the power of this event that comes with the advent of Jesus Christ has no lesser goal than to create, recreate the human being, recreate humanity as a whole through the one who represents all humanity and also unites every person with the God who created them. I want us to look at the passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, where Paul, who is a Jew, very much a Jew, is addressing congregations of believers that are very diverse, but seem to especially have a lot of, of Gentiles, of, of non-Jews in them, and are experiencing conflicts about this. And so Paul speaks directly to these non-Jews. Ephesians 2, verses 12 through 16. This is my translation, somewhat of a paraphrase to bring out things. Now remember the change that's happened. In that former time, you non-Jews had no part in an anointed king. 
since you were completely outside the polity and life of Israel and were strangers to the covenants that carried God's promises with no hope of sharing in them, since you had no connection to God in the cosmos that God created. But now, in anointed King Jesus, you who were once very distant from all of this have come right up to it in the human blood of that anointed king. For he himself embodies the peace that unites us. He made the separated groups a single reality. Notice the way Paul talks here. It's something he did. He made the separated groups, Gentiles who didn't know anything about him, as well as Jews who had never heard of him. He made the separated groups a single reality. Since in his human flesh, he destroyed that middle dividing wall, the hostility. That means he disempowered the law made up of commandments and legal rulings in order that he, in himself, could create from those two hostile groups one new human being a new humanity, and so make peace. He wanted to reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross by putting that hostility to death on the cross. Woo! If Paul's vision of the power of the cross to make peace is true, or if it's anything close to true, then there's really no division, no hostility among humans that cannot be overcome in this new creation. God made our diversity, and God values all the many shapes and forms and orientations of life and differing sensibilities and manifold forms of creativity, culture, etc., etc., that are part of that creation that he has made. He's not wanting to make one stick figure of us all. Some divisions are really hard for us to imagine healing and uniting anytime. But actually, what Paul says is God has already done it in Jesus. That's part of what he was doing on the cross. Our challenge is to value each other with respect and honor and especially love since we in our weaknesses, I in my weakness and, and distinctiveness have been loved as a child of God, as you in your beautiful distinctiveness and strengths uh, shall I say it, and weaknesses have been loved as a child of God. Remember that incredible challenge that's embedded in the angel's song to the shepherds. Glory in highest realms belongs to God, and on earth let there be peace among humans. The focus of God's favor.